We have hope. Hope that things can get better. And they will. You called it Jesse James. Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, folks, welcome to The Bizzle's Daily Rebels. This is Rebels Season 3, Episode 3 or 4, depending on how you are counting, the Antilles Extraction. And yes, it is Wedge Antilles, my friend. You know, when you grow up, you see these movies, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, they're legends, they're amazing. But as a little kid, you also gravitate towards those cool side characters. And that's ultimately, you know, along with all the alien stuff, what makes Star Wars so great, um, are the side characters like Wedge, who pay off so even if you watch them out of order growing up and you have certain ones you watch a ton, like I watch Return of Jedi a ton, um, and then you go back and watch New Hope, maybe you're even introduced to them in different orders. In the end, you end up watching the whole trilogy at some point, you know, as it's meant to be watched over and over again. And the progression of Wedge from like barely helping to helping quite a bit to like one of the heroes of the final movie is just like such a great progression. You know, he, he gets more and more experienced and gets cooler and cooler. Now, I've criticized, I probably should just get out that I think it's absurd how young they make him look. I mean, Dennis Lawson, even in the original film, wasn't as young as this kid that they're trying to, to steal from the from the Empire to be their new hotshot pilot in, in, in the Rebellion. Um, but if you go back and look at Wedge in A New Hope, he actually is somewhat quite a bit younger looking. Uh, Dennis Lawson really became looked like a grizzled vet to Return of the Jedi, which is by far the one I watch the most and when I think of Wedge the most because he's in it the most and he has the, you know, the biggest hero arc in the final battle along with Billy D and, and, and the Millennium Falcon crew. Um, and so, you know, it's not so far-fetched in terms of the age gap as it might seem, but, you know, if we get away with, with Obi-Wan, then who cares about Wedge? I just, I'm not, I'm unclear as to why they felt they had to make him so young. Um, and this is certainly, it falls in the category of both a standalone episode and an episode that is introducing an original trilogy character seemingly unnecessarily. Like, it would just make sense that someone like Wedge would end up here. Um, I always imagined in my head that he was an Imperial pilot that turned, uh, this was growing, me growing up, that he was in fact an Imperial pilot that turned, which is what they were thinking. But I always imagined that he was like an established expert ace who turned because that's much cooler, much more dangerous and immediately makes him, you know, a great pilot for the rebellion. And the reason that he was like one of the 12 or 18 or whatever in the original new hope battle, um, it was Wedge. Um, but this makes sense too. This makes sense that he would leave, you know, before he's fully established when they're, you know, they have their eye on him, but not so heavy that it would make it impossible. Here's of course, um, new fulcrum, uh, who is Callus, of course, David Ayalo's character. Um, you know, uh, w- w- they don't even try and hide it. In season one, they really tried to hide, for the most part, that was Ashley Eckstein's voice, even though uh, I guess Tim was telling me that, you know, people were like, during season one of Rebels, when I wasn't watching it, people were like decoding Fulcrum's voice and there were theories about Ahsoka and that being Ahsoka. So they left a little bit of Ashley in there. Apparently, if you can, you know, do computer magic or just clairvoyant. Um, but, uh, they didn't really try and hide that this would be David Oyelowo. And I, I, but I like that the, for a couple episodes, they leave it to the viewer to kind of put it together before he blatantly just helps them. I think it's in this episode, right? Is this the one where he tells, tell, he says to Sabine, tell Garazab Aurelius that we're even or whatever? Of course, <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't really feel that way because he keeps helping them but uh he certainly wants to send a message that this was intentional and that it's steps fault 
accidentally turning him. So I don't know when we deal with Zeb realizing it himself and putting it together, but it's a classic Rebels moment and classic Zeb moment. You know, I love. Um, but, I, you know, I went back to my commentaries from the, the, the beginning of the first season, which I recorded quite a while ago. And one of the very first episodes is, you know, Ezra and they, they they referenced it earlier in this episode when Ezra's like, why am I not going? I've done this before. They send in Ezra to, to try and get some young recruits as well as spy in one of the early season one episodes. Um, but that one was very Disney kitty friendly. You know, there's like an obstacle course and the officers are very cartoonish looking. At that point, they were still not fully embracing this as a, you know, in a, adult-ish a kid a kid show that's very adult-ish or something like not just a kid show that adults will watch but like a show that both adults and kids want to actively watch hadn't quite established that formula yet um dur- during the early days or maybe they just had to build there but this one immediately is much scarier and more menacing you know um uh, we're concerned for some being safety because she's so stubborn and outspoken, and that's actually the biggest uh thing that Ezra could have pointed out for getting her although. Sabine would have killed him for even bringing it up, even though it's true, is that, you know, even though Ezra can get angry, Sabine's so much quicker to anger, and the only reason Ezra's not leading this miss... Right, yeah. Ezra says, I'm not a fan of these solo missions, and then Kanan, of course, says, rightly says, unless it's you, because Ezra thinks he should be there. But Ezra is, you know, way more able to get out of these situations and can control himself. Sabine can't control herself as soon as she starts to deal head-on with Imperial tyranny. She's speaking out against it, which is completely against the, the code of the mission. Is that her, tiny little Sabine? Um, you know, also, these are not meant to be kids who are being groomed to be Imperial recruits. These are actually Imperial recruits, and so they're normal-sized people, other than Sabine, who's tiny, um, uh, with their normal-sized equipment. Obviously, the TIE fighter gear is so classic. It's always great to see TIE fighter gear off the TIE fighter. Um, they've they've done that great in the films, you know, but also, like, in the video games, for example, running around in, in Battlefront, and your Imperial gear, uh, Imperial TIE fighter gear, I should say, and guns. Um, now, Sabine... We're, we're, she's sounding extra Tia Sarkari at the moment to me. Um, I think one of the reasons actually that Sabine works so great with Tia Sarkari's very distinctive voice is that half the time she's going through the Mando helmet, so it helps disguise it a little bit. Um, but the why you would want to, I don't know. It's it's very it's both sexy and adorable, which is really hard to pull off. The, just Tia Sarkari's voice. Um, but uh, so here's the mission that leads to the beginning of the recruitment. Um, but. Uh, you know, so we're we're getting more and more picture of how deeply seated uh, Sabine was in a way with the Empire and her project on Mandalore, which we find out horrifying reality of in season four when it gets used against them on Mandalore by by the Empire and friends of the Empire on Mandalore. Um, but uh, you know apparently her face and her art aren't well known enough around this futuristic scenario uh, to uh, to dissuade them from using her instead of Ezra, who is more suited to the job. Um, now, I said earlier on in these commentaries that Sabine's great at everything, but she's not the best pilot. She's an amazing pilot, and that's the other reason she's here. I think she actually remains a better pilot than Ezra. I don't know why I thought Ezra became the better pilot. It makes more sense that Sabine would be the better pilot, and so that that's the other justification here is you know the first the first rec- the first uh, um, infiltration in, the, in season one with Ezra was you know kids and doing ground type training and which with his Jedi stuff he can do in his sleep. This requires a little bit more technical skill, which of course is Sabine's forte. In addition to her knowing how the insides of the Empire works with codes and, and call signs, 
she's arguing imperial protocol back to her superior officer which of course you never do and as bureaucratic as the empire is everything is trumped by the by the tyrant the desires of the tyrant and it's a miracle they don't just completely kill her but it is fun that even though the you know the rebels will win at the end of this episode as they almost always do it's fun that the empire is onto this particular plan um and uh, i think right coming up and they, they've disabled the the hyperdrives on the ships or, or or something um oh no the ship's wings just like blow off and they're stuck in space to be captured um this is really cool and this shows that the wings can be detached you know which is which is giving us a subtle clue for later because we never really see that, that that's it's awesome are they detached or are they just off screen? But you're wrong, cadets. Mm-hmm. Yep, they know it's called the ghost. Oh, is this there? We see this guy in... Yes, I believe we see this guy again in season four on Lethal. This is like their, their hotshot ace imperial veteran. This is sort of, I guess, what I thought Wedge was a little bit more uh, in my own mind with the original trilogy version of how did Wedge get to the Empire. But this guy is, is even way older than Return of the Jedi Wedge, so that would make zero sense. Um, you know, as a pilot, you can fly at a very high level until you're quite old. Um, the biggest thing with fighter pilots and what, you know, they leave to become commercial pilots other than just having a normal life and get, making actual money and not just fighting a war your whole life for pilots, that is. But fighter pilots, you, you, they do age because, uh, I mean, part of it is just not losing consciousness and having blood loss and blood clots and stuff at, at those speeds, at those altitudes and those G forces, you know, if you if you don't, if your circulation is less than like a hundred percent, um, like normal or above normal, you know, it'll just pass out. Um, and of course we know reaction time slows, but it's so hard to trade fighter pilots that in the Israeli army, at least I know you need 10 years minimum commitment because it takes you years just to get like fully going in your F-15 or whatever. So that already puts you at like 28 years old. And then they're expecting some of those guys to be officers and stay on. So my guess is the top fighter pilots will fly until their mid thirties at the latest, but by then they probably have commands or they've moved on to the commercial market. Um, Plus, you just you need to have that you know thing you only have in your teens, and for some people into their twenties, it's just balls to the wall, thrill seeking, as you know, to be to be a fighter pilot. Um, and I think that the 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 fact that stormtroopers are just uh bait, <laughs> stormtroopers are just you know red shirts. I mean, obviously red shirts. Uh, you know, they're just meant to be, um, uh, you know, to to be um. Sorry, I'm just watching this exchange with Sabine and Wedge. This is kind of a cool little little bit here. Um, but anyway, stormtroopers are meant to be mincemeat, and the, the fact that the TIE fighter pilots are so expendable it doesn't actually align with any form of reality because of the amount of training that would need to go into it. Although I guess the reason the TIE fighters are so simple, uh, you know, in, in their way, is so that they can continually cycle through pilots, not have to worry about them being cannon fodder, which was the word I was looking for, the term I was looking for before, uh, as cannon fodder. Um, and this shows that they do definitely spend more time on their pilots than on the stormtrooper training, which, which makes total sense. I mean, you know, in, in the entire U S army of which there's anywhere between half a million to a million people working in some ways directly with the U S army, that doesn't even include, you know, the weapons industry and so forth. Um, just as let's say a million people, you know, most of none of, you know, the vast majority of whom are not soldiers of any kind, but even if we say, let's say there's a 
let's say a hundred thousand fighters, right? Air, land, and sea. There's only we have a hundred thousand fighters in, in the U.S. military. A tiny fraction of them are flying anything, and a tinier fraction of them are flying like the advanced planes. Um, it's ex- it, in, it, even though those planes can cost like one billion dollars a pop or more for like an F-15. Um, nevertheless, the training of the pilots is very, very expensive, and during key parts of major recent wars like world war ii uh it, it was the pilots that they were losing faster than i mean they once the war machine going world war ii they could get the planes in the air to fight the germans but the germans were such good fighters and so advanced and they were losing the allies were losing pilots so quickly it's really hard you know i mean it's true that you can't just throw a million grunts with no weapons at something and, and hope to have it solve the problem, but you certainly can put a gun in any idiot's hand, as we see constantly, unfortunately, in our daily shootings, and the, the idiot can do terrible things with the gun, and you just point them in one direction, tell them to shoot that way. I, I know, obviously, most soldiers aren't like that, but you can, in theory, do that. You, you you can't even, you know, launch a plane in the air without, you know, months and months and months of training. Um, and uh, so I, I think that was maybe part of the world building going on in this episode, the equation for, for why this episode was, it wasn't so much that we wanted to explain why and how Wedge got to the rebellion as as seeing what it was like inside the much more serious, highly trained and further advanced students of Imperial flying, as opposed to the mincemeat that is the stormtroopers. What I like about the Ezra mission in season one was that he accidentally rec- recruits those recruits. I, I don't think that's his primary mission. He he just sort of sways them with his example and his you know his his moral like Princess Leia style you know sort of moral example accidentally inspiring people. He's not even meaning to inspire. Here, the other reason to have Sabine is because she's older and you can you you know. <laughs> The, the chance that they would believe her story was low, and, and it's lucky for all of us in support of the rebellion that they ended up believing Sabine and, are, and aren't going to risk their lives to join her. But they wouldn't have they wouldn't have worked with Ezra's age and experience level, especially within the Empire. She knows what they're going through, and I think they could have explored that more in terms of her conversation. A little bit of that comes out with Wedge. I think they could have explored that a tiny bit more um, in terms of her conversations with them and like you know the reasons not to be with the Empire. But at the same time, it does fit with the way Star Wars normally treats the stuff, which is some people are just slaves of the Empire and don't have a choice. Some people actually believe in it, and then there's people who are kind of stuck in it, but only need a little nudging to, to realize what they're doing is wrong. Or, or like Wedge already seems to realize what he's doing is wrong, but thinks up until now his best chance of survival is to just just go along with it because you know that's where i mean again it's better than being a stormtrooper right and or being an oppressed person on some other planet um and so he doesn't really need a moral nudge whatsoever it's more of like a practical can we pull this off can we trust uh, trust her and you know that's the thing about sabine while i I was saying it was a, a liability about how honest she was it's also her ultimate selling point in a mission like this is her honesty because these these type of young guys who are you know above average smart for their you know where, where they're at I, I would say clearly would would just need a sort of rational explanation mixed with a decent plan uh, and this is also building up um, governor prices you know th- they didn't want to just introduce Thrawn and solve everything they wanted Thrawn to have some people around him who were more competent than we'd seen um, especially because they would need numerous people to to foil uh, f- fulcrum um, uh, who's, who's callous now? Um, 
This is so cool the way the wings just pop off and the balls are flying in the air. That's such an awesome concept. I wonder if this was like, sometimes I, I say that, you know, film, I think filmmakers, movie and TV have certain images in mind. They build everything around. Like I think the, 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 the death scene, hugging scene of Jin and casting at the end of Rogue One, my guess is they had pretty early on and that informed the way that the, when they, you know, these, the single engine reactor thing that Tarkin does, um, Krennic and Tarkin, they do it to Jeddah. And then of course, uh, uh to, uh, Scarif at the end where they shoot, you know, a partial Death Star laser blast into the core of the planet and it causes a giant earthquake, but it doesn't blow up the planet. But that image of like deaths, you know, sort of coming at them in the giant tidal wave at the end, at the end of Rogue One with Jin and Cassie and I, I sometimes wonder if they had that in their heads early on. I think they had this notion of the 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 balls, uh, the TIE fighter balls floating by themselves in space, which we'd never seen before in mind when coming up with the the, the idea for the episode. But who knows? Normally they have a giant st- story room or multiple story rooms where they have ideas written and posted all over the place and then they'll start tying them together. So like someone will have pitched an idea in season one, never gets done. Then get to season two that starts to work with something else that someone else was developing for season two or like maybe I have an idea for season three, but now it starts to fit in with like where we're pulling like Sabine, like with the dark saber coming up later in this season, like maybe that was supposed to eventually be uh, originally supposed to be a season four thing. And they pushed it to the end of season three cause they wanted to push Sabine forward, which was really, really, really smart. And we'll get to why I think it was smart. And it was, it, it, they almost waited to arguably, they did but they almost waited too long to make Sabine fully three-dimensional in this series um, and they finally nail it with the Darksaber um, later on um, but this is certainly a good opportunity here and you know as fun as the ten- the Ketsu episode is and the first Mandalore episode are in, in, um, uh, in season two which are the first sort of two Sabine heavy episodes this is the first time we see her um, Oh, this is great because these two look look so similar. I mean, she—it's not a coincidence the haircuts, you know, and, and the and the, the look of the women and how how stubborn and strong and and, and you know almost psychotically bold both Sabine and Governor Price are, and Price seeing Sabine, you know, like a younger version of herself and Sabine and, and Sabine saying, "Oh my God, thank God I'm not headed in this direction." Although at the moment she's not really happy about the torture, I'm sure. Nope. No, torture not gonna happen <laughs> yeah yeah it's like it's like the mother she never wanted and, and glad she never had although when we meet her actual mom i mean she's she's almost as bad as governor price she basically is as bad as governor i mean sabine's mom is forced into helping them ultimately but we'll get there my client taught me better boom oh price shocked by her own her own torture device so yeah so we needed more than just theron uh as the rebels got smarter and more powerful and price will certainly step up from what we've, what we've had. Yeah. I think one, a few realistic parts I mean, empire is so unrealistic in so many ways, completely unsustainable, um, in terms of how it deals with personnel to say the least. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the thing, the thing is we imagine Nazis all dealing with each other, like, st- like the Imperial stormtroopers all deal with each other up oh, here. It is. He's giving it to them. Avoid level three. But ultimately I bet if we went horrifyingly behind the scenes of like day to day Nazis, they probably treated each other just like other armies, which is to say that, that, you know, Sometimes it's scarier when the bad guys, it's actually, it generally is scary when the bad guys, you know, 
not only think what they're doing is good, but in other aspects of their lives, act like normal human beings. That makes it really scary. And that's why I think they couldn't really do that with too many Imperial officers. We do get it with the Callus arc, obviously, humanizing Callus. We do get the reverse side of that, obviously, which I, you know, I love with Cassian Andor, with the rebel, with the rebels who we start feeling uncomfortable about, who we always just assumed were the all out and out good guys constantly. Um, in Rogue One with Cassian. Um, but, uh, ultimately you need to have most of the big baddies in the empire for what Star Wars is, which is serious, but for families as mustache twirlers and and just totally evil because it would just become cripplingly, oppressively uncomfortable if something is beloved it's Star Wars and that's part of and there's so many problems with The Last Jedi but one of the problems that uh, that I think I'm glad they didn't avoid even if they saw coming which I don't think was you know having all of your heroes uh, act badly yet the same or stupidly in the same movie uh, throughout the entire thing it is exhausting and does feel a little against the Star Wars mold where you know it, it, there are reluctant heroes and heroes can make bad decisions, but to a point where you, you have really nothing to hold on to and nothing to believe in. And, you know, they thought that just through Princess Leia herself and the character of, of Rose Tico and, of course, you know, Ray bringing Luke around, that that would be enough. Um, but, and, and certainly the, the not wanting to meet your heroes and everyone being flawed thing was, was n- not among my problems whatsoever with The Last Jedi, a movie I have lots of issues with. Um, that, that was one thing I love that they did with it, but, but I think that just if people are already not fully on board that movie, you know, having not having their heroes at all and not seeing any kind of moral center to what was going on is, you know, it's disorienting. And that's the miracle of Rogue One was that they were able to pull that off. Was that so many of the the rebel uh, leaders and and high figures from from Cassian on up to Mon Mothma were acting really badly. Um, but we had to convincingly turn them to the rebellion that we knew and loved from the original trilogy, make it human, make it believable, um, but also be on board with the team at, by the end of the movie. And goddamn, I think everyone can, would say that they are, whether they love Rogue One or not. Yep, welcome to the rebellion. Now here it is. So, you know, again, on, on um, as I'll continue to say, on repeat uh, watches of the series, I really enjoy those those episodes. It gives me time to breathe as a commentator. It gives me time to comment on, you know, bigger issues um, in these very quick 20-minute episodes. Um, and, uh, you know, it ends up being great. Um, Sabine, all the Sabine episodes end up being better. Uh, with, with the rewatch, I always think there's they're a little skin deep in terms of the writing, uh, but she always pulls off a great performance at TSR Car. So another fun Rebels episode, Hera's Heroes Next, where we learn a ton about Hera and Art and Thrawn, and there's some great world building stuff in there about the Twi'leks and and just w- the place of art in um, uh, in Star Wars society. And actually, art discussion, like art th- theory, becomes a thing in Star Wars going forward when we when we get to Mandalore and meet Sabine's family. So. Thank you for joining me. Uh, You guys have been awesome. May the force be with you. But for now, the Bizzlecast is out.